there's something about public architecture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that enthralls me. A decade ago, I happened to live in the great metropolis that is Pierre, South Dakota. And yes, that is how you pronounce it. There is no Pierre, South Dakota. Which was home to the state capitol building. And over the course of my journalistic career, and even just my free time, I came to admire the neoclassical columns, dome, and flourishes of that seat of government, built in 1910. What's funny is, if you look across all the state capitals, and even the capitol building in Washington, you almost always get the same vibe. Something large, domed, flanked by pillars, and evoking an almost romantic, grand, and awe-inspiring feeling. Everything happening in those buildings must be equally romantic, grand, and awe-inspiring, right? I don't have to tell you that that's not true, and a look around the modern political landscape is enough to disabuse anyone of a Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington naivete. But even if reality falls short, and it did in the past as much as today, I like to think that the ideals that inspired these monuments is maybe preserved just a little bit in the stone, glass, and wood that make up the buildings themselves. And today's story covers a little bit of all of that. The follies and shenanigans that make politics such an easy target for jokes, coupled with the story of an imposing dome structure in the heart of Phoenix that represents Arizona's aspirations. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ. The History of Arizona. Episode 145, Baptized with Flowers and a Flood of Oratory. Welcome back, everyone. I want to start today with a huge apology for everyone who tuned in just bursting with excitement to hear all about journalism in Arizona's territorial period. When I buttoned up the last episode, I fully intended to tackle newspapers today and dove headfirst into my research for that. However, during that research, I discovered a new source, a whole book written on this very subject. I was going to go off of journal articles, parts of other books, and some of my own research, so finding out that someone had taken the time to write a whole book on this got me very excited. And the only problem, since I was just now learning about it, I obviously didn't have said book, so I had to order it, wait for it to arrive, then read it, mark it up, and only then could I write about it. So you can see my conundrum. In the end, I opted to postpone that episode by several weeks so I could get this book into my hands and really do it right. And what that meant is I had to come up with something else to talk about today. For that, I want to turn away from the news, for now, and turn back to the newsmakers, which means let's take another spin through the rapidly revolving door of Arizona politics. Now, when we last left off talking about the political situation in the territory, It was in episode 133, and Benjamin Joseph Franklin was getting the boot as the governor of Arizona. This was because, as has happened time and time again, he was a Democrat, and incoming Republican President William McKinley had been elected in 1897. I also mentioned how Franklin had promised to resign before McKinley was actually sworn in, 
but when it came down to it, instead he sent people to lobby against the next guy to get the job. And that brings us to Myron Holly McCord, who is the president's choice to be Arizona's 13th territorial governor. Now, I won't go so far as to call him unlucky number 13, but there is no doubt that his candidacy and governorship were a little more short and interesting than most. McCord had been born in Ceres, Pennsylvania in 1840, before the family upped and moved to Wisconsin, where he would eventually become a prominent businessman, first dabbling in lumber and then producing wooden sashes, doors, blinds, and other products. He was elected to the state senate in 1872 and again in 1874, and then to the state assembly in 1880. And he was popular enough that the state decided to send him to Congress in 1888. It's here that fate smiled upon him, because it just so happened that the fellow seated in the desk right next to his on the House floor was a congressman from Ohio by the name of William McKinley. The two would strike up a friendship, and McCord was an ardent promoter of McKinley, which is pretty much why in the future he would get the appointment to be governor of Arizona. McCord would run for re-election in 1890, but he lost, and was unsuccessful with a follow-up bid in 1892. His business dealings also seemed to have declined rapidly during this time, so in 1893 he moved to Arizona, seeking to build up wealth with fruit trees and actively engaging in and promoting the cattle industry. In 1895, he was named to the Board of Control, which oversaw the territorial prison, insane asylum, and reform school. Here, he would get involved in a boondoggle involving the use of inmates to build a 13-mile irrigation canal near Yuma, with payment for their use to be in water usage from the canal. However, many people were not happy about the terms of this contract, and the canal never was built and it just became this albatross that McCord's opponents were more than happy to make sure everyone knew was around his neck. There were other scandals too, including a convict who was pardoned and then took up a position at the prison where he managed to pay extravagant prices to contractors. McCord also managed to buy 10 acres of land for the insane asylum, paying $630 for land valued at only $380. McCord was replaced on this board in 1896, but you better believe these decisions became part of the Senate fight over his nomination to the governorship the following year. Critics would also claim that his family had profited off the land legislation that McCord had championed while a member of Congress, but that's a whole other thing. And really, historian Jay Wagner tells us that McKinley basically forced McCord's confirmation. McCord was approved in a 29-18 vote, though he was attacked in the press, including by such Arizona notables as William Bucky O'Neill and Thomas Farish. The Arizona Weekly Journal Miner would write, quote, The man who says he wants McCord for governor of Arizona in the interest of good government needs watching. A hen roost is in danger when such a man is near it, and a watermelon patch is sure to be annihilated by his presence. End quote. Still, he had made it to the gubernatorial seat, so McCord got to work. He had been in Washington for the confirmation fight, 
but took a westbound train and was greeted by large crowds in Flagstaff, Williams, and Prescott. It was at this last stop that he would give a speech where he said, quote, We want more railroads. We want more irrigation canals. We want more money to develop our latent resources and uncover our hidden wealth. We want our public affairs managed honestly, wisely, and economically. And we want many thousands of industrious, honest, and worthy people to settle within our borders and help us build a state. And above all, we want the right to govern ourselves. All these things come with statehood. End quote. As you all know by now, there was no one in the audience that disagreed with that sentiment. That speech was made on Labor Day 1897, and I relate it because there's really very little left to talk about when it comes to McCord's time in office. Seriously, he's only there for a short time, and there wasn't even a meeting of the territorial legislature before he was gone. The only other thing he did of note was to double down on that irrigation boondoggle near Yuma, restoring a contract to the private company building the canal that Governor Franklin had rejected. But by now we are getting into the spring of 1898, and who here knows their American history well enough to tell me what was happening in the wider world in the spring of 1898? If your answer was the Spanish-American War, then you are correct. We were actually going to cover the war and Arizona's surprisingly large connections to it in our next episode. But for now, suffice it to say that McCord kicked off recruiting volunteers to fight in the conflict. And this is actually why he leaves office. With the whole nation fired up to fight the Spanish and free Cuba, McCord was swept up with the same sort of romantic heroism that would propel another prominent official, namely the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Teddy Roosevelt. And much like the much more famous Roosevelt, McCord decided to resign from his post so that he could serve as a colonel in the 1st Territorial Infantry. Despite a petition signed by dozens of Arizona citizens asking him to stay as governor and not go chasing this position, McCord resigned his office on July 9, 1898, with an effective date of August 1st. With no military experience to speak of, McCord confined himself to administrative work for his infantry unit, though it had only made it to Georgia before learning that the war had ended. Though he had quit the position after only a year to fight in a war that he never got to be a part of, McCord was gracious and told the first Territorial Infantry members at a reunion in 1900 that he regretted nothing. McKinley would again step in to help his friend, appointing McCord to a four-year term as the United States Marshal for Arizona. By the time his term expired in 1905, McKinley had been assassinated, so McCord was not reappointed. However, he managed to get an appointment as the Collector of Customs at Nogales. He would serve in this position until his death in April 1908 from Bright's disease. Usually, this is where things would end for the coverage of one of our governors, but after McCord's death, a slightly amusing thing occurred. You see, at the time of his death, McCord was on his third wife. He had married his first wife, Anna, in 1861, but left her in 1877 after procuring a rather sketchy divorce in the Utah Territory while traveling for business. 
His second wife, Sarah, died in 1903, so he married Mary Emma, Sarah's second cousin, in 1904. When he died, he left everything to Mary Emma, but at this point, Anna suddenly popped up again and claimed that her divorce hadn't been entirely legal. She claimed she had never waived her community property rights and that she hadn't been served papers before the divorce was finalized. Ergo, she was also entitled to a portion of McCord's estate. The Territorial Supreme Court eventually struck down Anna's claims, pointing out that she had been living all this time as if divorced, and if she really thought it had been invalid, she would have said something in the preceding three decades. It seems that even in death, McCord just couldn't keep himself from being wrapped up in some controversy. So that was a fun year in the life of Myron McCord, but now that he's resigned to march off to war... That left Arizona without a governor. As fate would have it, shortly after McCord's resignation landed on McKinley's desk, a fellow Republican and Arizonan was called to the White House. This was none other than Nathan Oakes Murphy, who we discussed back in episode 132 and had been replaced as governor when Grover Cleveland had won his second term in the Oval Office. McKinley met with Murphy and offered to appoint him as governor again on the spot, most likely to spare himself the headache of having to fend off a gaggle of job seekers. Murphy's reappointment was met with general positivity by the press in Arizona, but let's see exactly how long that will last. In January 1899, the 20th Territorial Legislature went into session, with Murphy giving the customary opening address. His comments here paralleled one of the major points he had made during his first tenure as governor, namely that of equitable taxation. The uneven distribution of the tax burden and the lackluster revenues that were brought in were some of the territory's biggest problems, he said. Simple justice, if nothing more, demands the equitable apportionment of taxes, was his message to the legislature. Specifically, he believed that taxes should be raised on railroads to match their increasing profits and the market value of their securities. He also called for more taxation on mines, either on their actual profits or just assessing their property at their real value. According to his estimation, the $100 million in mines were listed on the tax rolls as being only worth $2 million. Unfortunately, Murphy's call for tax reform ultimately went nowhere, as none of the bills introduced into that session were actually passed. Though this was undoubtedly disappointing, the governor did have a few accomplishments he could point to. When a debate was happening to use a territorial building in Flagstaff for either a reform school or an asylum, Murphy jumped in and suggested that it be used as a normal school, that is a place to educate teachers, instead. The Speaker of the House and future U.S. Senator Henry F. Ashurst, who happened to be from Coconino County, introduced a bill to form the Northern Arizona Normal School. The first term of what would eventually become Northern Arizona University began on September 11, 1899. Another recommendation of Murphy's that the legislature took up was the project of reviewing and revisiting Arizona's Code of Laws, in order to clean up the territory's legal code and remove anything improper or contradictory that had built up in the past few decades. Councilman George W.P. Hunt, 
and I suggest that you memorize that name, also introduced a bill to make the sending of children between the ages of 8 and 14 to school at least 12 weeks of the year mandatory. Speaking of Hunt, early state historian James H. McClintock tells us that Hunt tried running to be the president of the Territorial Council, but lost to Morris Goldwater, and that this might have been the only loss in Hunt's long political career. The 20th legislature is also the one that turned to nostalgic matters to make sure to take care of a couple of their own. This legislature learned that the former territorial secretary, John J. Gosper, who had served under Governor John C. Fremont and really ran the territory while his boss was constantly somewhere else, had died penniless in a Los Angeles hospital. So they made a small appropriation to cover his burial expenses, which was really a nice little gesture. Continuing in the same vein, this is also the body that voted a pension for our old friend Charles Poston, the father of Arizona. We've covered Poston's later life in a previous episode, specifically episode 55, but to recap, in the last decade of his life, his fortunes were not good, and he sunk a lot of his money into the idea of building his Zoroastrian temple on top of that butte near Florence. A man named Whitelaw Reed, later an ambassador to Great Britain, wrote a news article in 1897 about a visit to see Poston. He would write that Poston was living in squalid conditions with his one-room adobe building being covered in spiders. That single tiny room, Reed wrote, is at once the kitchen and boudoir of Arizona's first congressman, a learned, culture gentleman, lawyer, traveler, author, explorer, soldier. This account no doubt helped Poston secure his pension of $25 per month, which was raised to $35 per month a short time later. Another appropriations bill that was passed by the 20th legislature would also shortly become a huge criticism against Governor Murphy. Basically, the legislature had set up a contingency fund so that the governor could use up to $6,250 to apprehend criminals or those who might have escaped from the territorial asylum. However, Murphy seems to have viewed this as something of a slush fund, and soon he was regularly asking for territorial auditor George W. Vickers to take money out of the fund. These withdrawals were never egregious, but it was basically like the kid that sneaks a cookie out of the jar here and there until it's halfway empty. And in 1902, the president of the Territorial Council actually called him out on this, writing up a report that was sent to Congressional Delegate Marcus Smith to hand to President Roosevelt. This report was filled with all sorts of accusations, such as drawing out more than $1,000 to give to his private secretary in addition to their salary, or giving thousands to help fund the Arizona Republican, which was operated by Vickers and virtually owned by either the governor or his family. Murphy may have justified this dishonest use of taxpayer funds, which we have to admit it was, because the governor's salary was not quite keeping up with the cost of living. He had complained about his salary before, and while Congress did give him some extra cash in 1900 and 1901, it wasn't still like he was making bank. I kind of feel that Murphy got away too easy, seeing as that no action was ever taken to slap his hand on this issue. 
One case was brought to court in Arizona, but the judge dismissed the action against Murphy, saying that Vickers was really to blame since he was the one actually taking money out of the fund. A legal technicality that doesn't change the fact that this was a big old smudge on Murphy's time in office. But during the time that the 20th legislature was actually working, a more pressing matter was at hand. The issue of the Territorial Capitol Building. We talked back in episode 116 that the site of a permanent Capitol building had been donated a full decade earlier, when Phoenix managed to swipe the Territorial Capitol from Prescott. It appears this project was long gestating, however, because a $100,000 bond issue to fund building the new capital was only approved during the 19th legislature in 1897. That ultimately proved to be insufficient, and so another $30,000 was appropriated for the project. McClintock does say that the final price tag turned out to be $140,000, or about $5.1 million in 2023 dollars. Historian Jay Wagner gives a lower estimate of $135,744.29 for the building's total cost, and that the next legislature was told to just find a way to eat the nearly $6,000 overage. On February 13, 1899, Tom Lavelle of Denton, Texas was declared the winner in a 16-bitter contest for the contract to finally erect the building. Funny enough, though, is that the contract didn't allow Lovell to decide what the building would actually be made out of, as the composition of the exterior walls fell to a three-man capital commission of leading citizens. These decided that they would use granite for the substructure, but wanted tufa, a type of limestone made from calcium carbonate, for the superstructure. This they obtained from Kirkland Valley, which is just north of State Route 89 as it runs between Yarnell and Prescott. Of course, after the actual shell of the building is up, there were additional contracts to add plumbing, heating, wiring, gas piping, an elevator, electric motor, and light fixtures. So yeah, we are a long way away from the floorless, unchinked, open-windowed log cabin that the first legislature met in when they first convened in Prescott. And I'll point out here that the Capitol building's most striking feature, its dome made from actual copper, is actually not original to the building. For the first 75 years of life, the dome was actually made of stone and painted a copper color. It wouldn't be until the 1970s that the famous dome of actual copper was added. On August 4th, 1900, Lovell turned the completed building over to the Capitol Commission for their approval. But because you really need to do some pomp and circumstance when inaugurating such a grand new building, and that takes time, the official dedication didn't occur until six months later on February 24th, 1901. $1,000 had been earmarked for the occasion, which went a lot longer in those days than today. So this was a gala affair, with special trains bringing in dignitaries and citizens alike for the occasion. Wagner puts it poetically when he says, quote, The capital was baptized with flowers and a flood of oratory. End quote. Governor Murphy spoke, naturally, 
along with the President of the Territorial Council and the Chief Justice from the Supreme Court, from a lavishly decorated grandstand that had been erected for just that purpose. Inside, the legislative chambers were decked out with garlands of northern pine and valley shrub. That evening, there was a great public reception, where the punch was flowing like water and everyone was abuzz about the splendid new building. As part of the celebration, the territory unveiled its official ode, Hail to Arizona, the Sun-Kissed Land, which had been written by Mrs. Frank Cox and Mrs. Elise R. Averill. And Mrs. Cox was on hand for the celebration to sing the territory's new ode. And according to one newspaper account, she was even entreated to give an encore of its performance. And here I also have to offer a much belated correction, because I actually recounted the first verse and chorus to this song way back in episode 80. At the time, I attributed these lyrics to one of the first Mormon families settling in St. Joseph, mainly because I found them in the archives of Mormon settlements in northern Arizona while researching at the University of Utah. I'd never seen them before, so naturally assumed that the primary source putting them down was the author. It wasn't until I started working on this episode that I realized that the lyrics to this ode were sounding awfully familiar. So apologies to Mrs. Cox and Averill for the misattribution. Wagner says it's possible all this celebration was to make up for the fact that there had been no traditional cornerstone ceremony. To his knowledge, the Arizona Capitol building might be the only one in the nation that doesn't have a ceremonial cornerstone, though when he was writing there was a bronze tablet on the first floor that gave essentially the same information you would usually find on such a cornerstone. From McClintock, we learned that the offices of the majority of the territorial officials were on the ground and main floors, with the governor's office on the northern side and the territorial secretary on the south side. The legislative chambers and committee rooms were on the third floor, complete with broad balconies for the viewing public. Here, I should also add that, like any century-old building, the Capitol has gone through numerous renovations over the years. But Arizona has made great use out of the original 1901 part of the building, which now houses the Arizona Capitol Museum. Dedicated to the state's history, there are a plethora of exhibits. I think my favorite part is that you can see what the original house chambers looked like in 1910, and you can even rent out the original Senate chambers for private functions if you are a nonprofit, public, civic, educational, or governmental entity. So add this to the list of places I highly recommend checking out. They say you are never a tourist in your own state, but let's do our best to change that. One of the first visitors to this magnificent new Capitol building was none other than President McKinley himself, who made a two-day visit to Arizona in May 1901. Aside from the Capitol building, he also saw the Congress mine northwest of Phoenix and toured the Phoenix Indian School, which is another subject we are going to have to tackle soon. But I'm getting ahead of myself now, as between when the building was completed and the fancy gala to dedicate it, Arizona, and Governor Murphy in particular, got swept up in national politics. Because 1900 was an election year, and so both of the major parties in the territory held their conventions to decide whom to send to the national presidential conventions. 
The Republicans nominated none other than Governor Murphy for the position of delegate to Congress, with the understanding that, if elected, he would serve through the next legislative session, which would end in March 1901. Meanwhile, the Democrats were in complete disarray, and both Wagner and McClintock used the word riot to describe their convention in Phoenix. Two factions had emerged in the party, one backing the incumbent congressional delegate, J.F. Wilson, while the other backed Marcus Aurelius Smith. And these two sides fought like cats and dogs, including over how to run their convention. Eventually, both sides just named people, and so absolute bedlam ensued when various people claiming to have the same job tried to assert themselves on the convention floor. Wagner says that pistols and knives were even drawn at one point, and it was only a police presence that kept things from turning violent. And Wilson seemed inclined to withdraw from the running, but his wife persuaded him not to be a quitter. So he kept going for another month, and then he bowed out. That meant now that Murphy was facing the absolute juggernaut that was Marcus Smith. Remember that Smith would hold the seat of congressional delegate seven times, and Murphy wasn't destined to hold it at all. The governor would go around the state defending his record, and also trying to shake an anti-labor reputation he had built up because he had vetoed a bill that would have forbidden employers from issuing blacklists of discharged workers. In fact, newspaper accounts tell us of a grand speech he gave at the Opera House in Jerome to a packed crowd. By the end of this speech, he was met with rousing applause, so at least in Jerome, he seems to have succeeded. But one good speech does not mean the election is destined to go your way. There were more registered Democrats than Republicans in the territory at the time, and though the governor carried all the northern counties, Smith was handed the election by Maricopa, Pima, and all the southern counties. And so Murphy did wind up working through the next legislative session. He just didn't take off to Washington after it was over. And I'm going to leave things here for this week, as in the political arena, we have now crossed the holy line of demarcation into the 1900s. So join me next week as we rewind by a few years and cover what was briefly touched on at the beginning of this episode, the Spanish-American War and Arizona's fascinating contributions to it. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.